Dead faith is useless, and it isn't faith at all. It's fear manifested in sentiment meant to trick men into feeling good about doing nothing. Welcome to the Restoring Manhood podcast, where we are engaging men in the battle and conversation about what it means to be a man in today's society. If you are a new listener, welcome to the podcast. We love new listeners. If you have been with us the whole time, thank you so much for your support and for listening. The only thing we ask is that if you're enjoying what you're listening to here, and if you're learning anything, please give us high marks. Give us a high star, um, five stars on iTunes and whatever else the high marks is on the other podcast um, applications. That would be fantastic. Also, leave a comment comment or leave a review because that helps push the podcast up in the ratings and we'll get more listeners and we really want to get this message out. We really think it is very important to help today's men understand what it means to be a man and understand the mantle that we carry as men in today's society is getting heavier and heavier and heavier and that over time in today's climate Becoming a man and being a man and standing for men manhood is going to become less popular and more of a struggle. So getting this message out, I believe, is very, very important. And um, yeah, we thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Today's podcast is titled that it's a message to Christian men. And the reason why I titled that is because today I'm going to be specifically using some biblical text to talk about something that I believe is a very big problem with today's Christian men. I myself am a Christian. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins and saved me from from my sins, saved me from eternity in hell, and that his dying on the cross and raising after three days is what paid the penalty for my sin. So I am a Christian. And although today's message is specifically about or to Christian men, I believe there is some value for those who may not know Christ or are curious or want to know what some aspects of biblical or Christian manhood could look like. I think there's value in this for many, but this message is to address some problems that I am seeing that are happening within the Christian community of men in today's society, specifically in the United States. Um, I'm going to start with telling some stories, and I've got three stories here that I want to tell. They're all within the Bible, and there's some Bible characters that most people are going to know, Christian or not, well-read in the Bible or not. These stories are stories that you're probably going to know. The first one is an easy one, and it's David and Goliath. And so if you want to confirm what I'm saying is true, which I I recommend you do, anytime you hear someone, anytime you hear someone quoting scripture or telling you what the Bible says, read it. Open the Bible yourself and read that Bible passage yourself to make sure what they're saying is true and that they're not kind of twisting what it means or what it says. Um, The Bible has a lot of context and a lot of things that matter as to who they're talking to and what community is being spoken to or how it's being spoken to. And so it's really important that as you are listening to a pastor or anybody else talk about the Bible and what the Bible says, confirm it. Read it for yourself. Um, I believe that you are smart men. I believe that 
Um, the world needs more men that are, in fact, smart and do their own research. And so I encourage you to do that. Confirm what I'm saying. And um, if you have differences or you think what I'm saying is wrong, then, hey, man, find me on social media and let's have a discussion. That'd be awesome. I love that kind of stuff. So the first story is David and Goliath. And I will be summarizing these stories because if I read them all, I would be reading for about an hour. But the story of David and Goliath and the points that I would like to draw to the forefront in this story are this. So if you want to read... The story starts in Samuel, uh, what do I got here? Second, or first Samuel 17. So that's the story of David and Goliath. Um, David was a young boy at this time, and he had been told previously by Samuel that he was going to be the king of Israel at some point, which is kind of crazy because he's this young boy. He was a farmer or he was a shepherd boy. And, um, you know, he kind of knew that this was going to happen or he had been told that this was going to happen. But in the meantime, he's a kid. All of his brothers were at the front of the, you know, kind of in the, at the war front and they were at battle with the Philistines. So Israel was at battle with the Philistines. They were kind of uh, at their camp and it kind of hit this stalemate where the two sides were facing off. Every morning, this guy named Goliath was gonna was coming out and he was taunting the, the Israelites. He was a Philistine and he was a giant. I think we all know the story of David and Goliath. So Goliath is giant, huge dude, and no one was really brave enough to go out there and fight Goliath. The Philistines had been taunting the Israelites um, and daring them to come out and fight. The Israelites were scared in their tents and Goliath's taunting them, saying, if you have any one man that can come out and fight me, you fight me, defeat me, and we'll go away. You win the war. And so this happens for a number of days, day, days and David comes to the war front to see his brothers. And so King Saul at this point is the one who is in charge of Israel. And he's there on the, on the war front in his tent and stuff like that, trying to figure out what to do. And David gets there, gets, brings food to his brothers, sees what's going on. And he's like, what is going on here? He's like, this is, you guys are Israel, like God's Israel. You're God's blessed people. Why are you afraid of this one guy, Goliath? You got to be kidding me right now. And so really long story short, David pretty much sees what's going on. He's this little kid. He goes to the king's like, I'm going to fight Goliath. The king's like, no, you're not. He goes, yeah, I'm going to fight Goliath. And after kind of a, an interaction, the king goes, fine, you go out there, fight Goliath. You've got God on your side. Um, if you think you can do it. And he's like, I'm going to fight Goliath because God has blessed me and God has, is going to make me strong. This impossible thing that shouldn't happen. I'm going to be able to do it because God is my power. It's basically what David is saying. So I was like, fine, whatever. So he's going to send David out to fight Goliath, gives David all of his armor. Like you need to wear all this armor. David puts on the armor. It's too big for him. It's too fat or too heavy. doesn't fit him. And so he takes it all off, walks out, grabs a rock, grabs a sling, which is basically, it's a slingshot, but it's the kind that you swing. I think we all have seen the stories of the pictures where he puts in his swing in his sling and he's one of these deals. You swing around in your head and you let go and the rock flies out. He goes out and kills Goliath with a rock and a sling. And Goliath is, you know, I'm say like 10 feet tall and with a, a spear that's huge and a sword that's bigger than David and blah, blah, blah. David goes out there, grabs, a, grabs Goliath's own sword and chops Goliath's head off. David this tiny guy sees that Israel, God's people, are sitting and terrified in their tents, praying, God, do something, God, do something, God, do something. David gets there. God says, David, go fight Goliath. And instead of David hiding in his tent with his brothers, saying, God, do something, God, do something, he responds to God's calling to act. And he proves that he has faith in God by going out and doing the will of God 
with and through God's power. He knows that God is bigger than him, and he knows that God is bigger than Goliath. He's aware that God can do impossible things. Therefore, he steps up and allows God to work through him. Story number one. Story number two is about Moses. I'll be quicker with this one. Moses is the one who led, out, led the, the Israelites out of Egypt. Egypt. The Israelites had been imprisoned by Egypt. They were Egypt's slaves. And Moses was the one that ended up leading them out. We all kind of know that story. What less of us know is that Moses ran away from Egypt because, um, you know, he had tried to defend some Egyptians and he, he was like the son of the Pharaoh's daughter because he was adopted, blah, blah, long story. Bottom line is he fled away from Egypt and away from Israel, which were effectively his people. And he was living happy and stoked at his at a farm and he was had kind of gained some wealth out there and he had married um, married a woman and he worked on his father-in-law's land and was happy and stoked out there in fact he was there for I think something like 40 years until God says you know what Moses you're going back you're going to lead your people out of Egypt Moses was like mm, no I don't want to <laughs> I really don't want to and effectively God shows up to Moses in a burning bush and tells him you're going to go back. Moses says, I don't want to. I'm not a good speaker. I'm not a good leader. God pretty much says, I know, and I'm going to do it. You're the one that I'm going to do it through. So effectively, through Moses's weaknesses and through Moses's in it, things that he thought he wasn't very good at, God ended up leading Egypt or Israel out of Egypt and doing many amazing, miraculous things, one of which is splitting the Red Sea, which we've all kind of seen that one, and um, we all know that. Moses had faith in God, was told to prove his faith in God by doing something that was impossible. And he did so knowing that God was the one that was going to do it, not him. And God did amazing things. And Moses is Moses, they were in the name we remember. The last story I want to talk about is Gideon. And this one, I'll go back. If you want to read the Moses story, start in Exodus 2. And most of that I just talked about is in Exodus 2 and 3. Gideon, that is in the book of Judges. Start in Judges 6, read through Judges 6 and Judges 7. This is kind of a long story, but I'll paraphrase this one as well. So Gideon was with his people, and they were being oppressed, and just Israel was being just beat up every time they could turn around by the Midianites. And the Midianites were, had a huge army. They would come in. Bible says it was like locusts. They would just pick over all their crops. They would take all their food. And Israel was destitute. And this happened over and over and over again. And Gideon's like, what the heck? And he's praying to God. And these people are praying to God, like, God, fix it. God, fix it. God, fix it. Um, and what had happened was effectively this is one of the many times that Israel had fallen away from God, started ignoring God, um, got lazy in their faith, got lazy in their in their belief, their faith didn't really mean much. Their life was easy. They didn't really think God had the power he had, or they didn't really understand God's power. And God, they did what was evil inside of the Lord. Started worshiping other idols, started paying attention to other things, whether it was money or these idols that they made out of gold and stuff like that. God turned his back. Gideon and the Israelites started to realize, oh my gosh, God, we need you here. We need you to save us from the Midianites because they're they're terrorizing us. They're taking our food. We're destitute. We're poor. We can't eat. Um, we're turning to slaves and all this kind of stuff. To turn a long story short, God tells Gideon himself, you're going to take on the Midianites. And he's like, <laughs> no way, God, like that's impossible. Their army's huge. There's no way we could put together an army that big. That's crazy. 
God says, yes, I am. I'm going to do it through you with Israeli men. You guys are going to go fight the Midianites and you're going to win. And he goes, I don't really believe it. And so then he goes through this process of being like, okay, I don't want to challenge you, God, but if this is really you and you're really telling me to do this, you know, can you make this, I'm going to put this piece of this fleece out on the back lawn. <laughs> if you can make the fleece wet and the lawn dry, then I know it's you. Happens. Okay. Well, hey God, I don't want to challenge you again, but like to, just to be sure, can you make the fleece dry and the lawn wet the next time? Basically, God does it. Happens twice. So that confirms that Gideon is supposed to go out and do this impossible thing. So he goes, okay. So Gideon gets a, gets gets up. He gets gets a hold of 30,000 men. God goes, nope, that's too many men to take on the Midianites. And he goes, what are you, basically, like, what are you talking about? Like 30,000 men, that's still probably not enough, honestly, for to beat the Midianites. God goes, it's too many men. Which basically what God is saying is, I want this to be about me and how amazing I am. And I'm going to do an impossible thing through you. So I don't want you to go in there with 30,000 men because they might think that you did this, but I can do amazing things. So he tells him, look, you tell all the men that any of them that are afraid and fearful, go home. So literally in this passage, and this might be one I dig in and do in another podcast, what God says is men that are scared are useless to me right now. Send them home. So they got sent home. Then he was down to, oh, I think went from 30,000 to less. <laughs> so it was either 3,000 or 10,000. And God said, it's still too many. He goes, are you kidding me right now? So okay, this is what I'm gonna have you do. This, this one's a really weird. He says, have them go down to the water and drink. And he says, those that lap water like a dog, keep them. The rest send home. He's like, okay. So that happens. He says, okay, man, go down to the water, get a drink. And so the men that reach over and they lap water like a dog, they were told to say, it turns out to be 300 men that he has left to go against the, against the entire Midianite army. Now, what lap like a dog means is it means that you would basically if you kneel down at the water and put your hand down to the water. It's if you it, look up the original Greek, what it actually means effectively is if you're drinking water like a dog, you're have your you fill your hand with water, and they would kind of lick the water out of their hand. What that does is it keeps your eyes on the horizon. So effectively, you can drink water while having your head and your eyes up. So what it means is those men were alert and they were watching what was going on in their surroundings, and they knew exactly what was going on around them. The other men would kneel down, stick their head in the water, have their head down, and they weren't paying attention to what was going on. So I think what God's saying here is effectively, the men who I can use are men who are paying attention, men that see what's going on around them. That's the men I want to use. And he had 300 of them. Okay. So he sent those off to war and he goes, by the way, you're not going to take any weapons. I want you to take a bunch of trumpets. <laughs> he goes out, takes these 300 men's men. They go out, they blow their trumpets and Gideon divides them up into a couple different um, platoons. And they come at the Midianites from different directions, blowing their horns. Midianites freak out, run away. Israelites win the battle with 300 men. God won the battle. Gideon was told to do an impossible thing instead of hiding in his house praying that God would magically, miraculously fix something without his input, he, even though he kind of didn't want to and he challenged God a little bit, he responded to the calling of God 
stepped out to do something impossible that could potentially end in his death because God told him to. And God did an impossible thing through Gideon's faith. Gideon's faith was proven by his actions. Now I'm going to read a passage. The passage is James 2, 17. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. That's it. That's the passage. Now, the problem that I wanted to address in this podcast is this. I see and I hear often from men around me, see this stuff on social media, hear it myself. I hear these things. God's got it. Good thing God's in control. I'm glad God's God. I'm glad God's will will always be done. And I hear things like that and sentiments like that all the time. But what I see, that being the precursor to, is usually nothing. Non-action. Now, there's other passages in the Bible that specifically talk about casting your anxieties on the Lord and having him take your anxiety and your stress away. Just like God takes the care of the birds of the sky and the, bir- and the flowers of the field. Birds don't store up food. God provides food for them. The flowers don't worry about anything, and they're the most beautiful thing in the world. That's, the, that's what those passages are saying. However, those passages are not an excuse for non-action, as I've seemed to have heard them be used many, many times, along with the statements, God's got in control. I believe in God. God's got this. As if, miraculously, without our actions— God will change everything around us that's going wrong. Without men who respond to a calling and prove their faith by action, it seems like we think that God's just going to fix stuff that is going on that's wrong around us. That is absolutely wrong. What these passages are saying, and I could come up with so many more examples Just start with the apostles. Those men gave up their lives to spread the gospel, to do God's will for their life. They died, most of them miserably, because they did what God wanted to do, because they proved their faith by doing something with it. Having faith in God and doing nothing is the same as putting gasoline in your car and letting it sit in the garage. If you put gasoline in a car and you let it sit in the garage, especially modern gasoline that has a ton of ethanol in it, which most of our gas has, it's a whole other soapbox I could get on about how bad our gas is, but if you put modern gasoline in a car and you leave it sit in your garage for three months, that gasoline will break down. The ethanol will break down the gasoline. It will start to smell bad. It will ruin your gas tank. It will gum up your fuel filter, and it will clog your injectors. If you have a fuel-injected car, if you have a carbureted car, it'll get into all the jets and ruin the jetting in the car, and your car won't run right or it won't start, and it'll sputter and bang and smoke. And you've got to, if you leave the gasoline there too long, you have to do a complete gas, like like you have to drain the gas, clean everything, sometimes replace fuel injectors or replace a fuel pump. It's bad, bad news. That is exactly like faith and doing nothing. Faith with no actions is like gas that goes bad. That gasoline fuel goes dead. 
So if we as men are claiming that we have faith in God and we have faith that God is going to do these miraculous things, but we aren't responding and doing, stepping out into seemingly potentially impossible things to prove our faith, then what is that? Is that faith? I don't think so. Dead faith is useless, and it isn't faith at all. It's fear manifested in sentiment meant to trick men into feeling good about doing nothing. Men, don't be that guy. Do something. We can't sit in our homes and see people around us suffer. We can't see wrongs being done and do nothing. We cannot sit like the Israelites did when Goliath was taunting, while their people were being persecuted, while their people were being mocked, while things were being taken, like Gideon, when their crops were being stolen, when their people were being oppressed, and do nothing. Those men, David and Gideon, responded to the calling of God by stepping out and doing something impossible because they knew God was behind them and in front of them and calling them to do so. And I'm telling you, men, if you are a Christian and you believe in God, at some point, God's going to call you into something that seems crazy and it seems way above your head. And it will be something that will prove God's greatness. So you better be ready for it. At some point, that's going to come. And when it comes, it'll be scary. And that's the point. Faith will push us into a scary situation that seems over our head because we trust that God will be the one that shows off his power through us doing something that's way above our ability. And not a single one of you men does not have the capacity to step into faith and allow God to do something impossible through you. You can do this. I don't know what that is, and I can't answer that for each one of you individually, but you will know it when God's calls. And if you want to know it, I suggest you take some notes from this passage, John 15, 7. If you remain in me, and in my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. What that is saying is that if you want to know God's will for you, then you better be praying, listening, reading your Bible. Because if you're not doing those three things, then you're not going to be abiding in him and he will not be abiding in you. And whatever you ask will probably be out of bounds. But if you want to ask for the things that God wants you to ask for, that he's prepared to do impossible things around, you better be in God's word, praying and listening to what he's telling you. So men, as you are lapping like a dog and staying alert to that which is around you, and looking for what it is God is calling you to do that is impossible on your own, go out in God's name and giddy up.